7.05, and boy, do we have a big show on tap for you tonight. It's Iron Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. Mike Balsamo here as well, and Ira... I need to get right into this one because we've got a lot up our sleeves tonight. Um, first and foremost, Sean not here with us tonight. You know, Ira, we went out and played golf at uh, one of Palm Beach County's finest courses, I think, Park Ridge, uh, right there in Lake Worth. Played over the weekend. I kicked his butt. And I think he's just a little bit sore from that, Ira. But we'll catch up with him next week. How was your week and what have you been doing? Well, I'm in New York right now. I was going to go to the Yankees-Mets game last night. But uh, it's been raining a lot here in New York, and so I wasn't able to make the game. It was rained out. But uh, for all those people in New York that say, it's so much hotter. Who could be in Florida in the summer? It's so nice here in New York. It's, it is so hot in the subways. I think it's like 120 degrees. So I, it is, you could go to the hottest place in West Palm Beach, and I guarantee you it's probably 50% more, uh, cooler than it is in New York in the, in the middle of, the, of July and August. You know, I've been saying that for years, you know, being a former New Yorker as well. This is why we're trying to get you to move to Florida for time. Once you trade off the little bit of heat in September and October that they're not going to have, it makes up for not having the snow all winter long. I bet you spend plenty of time in LA as well. So I guess, you know, you get the best of both worlds. Yeah. I also, I saw a rare sight. Actually, I'm downtown and I saw someone going wearing a Mets jersey going to a New York Mets game. Um, they're playing now. Last night when they were supposed to play the Yankees, today they're playing home against the San Diego Padres. And as I just so for information purposes, I went and looked and saw that uh, I was sort of what what could tickets for this Mets. Padres game. A totally not important baseball game. Be. It's $4. You can go to the game for $4 on StubHub. And uh, I felt, I mean, I saw the one guy going. He's all dressed in his uniform. I'm like, that is a loyal fan. It, you know, it totally is. But that's what you get. You know, a lot of the New York Mets fans, for what they've been through, uh, I mean, you know, granted they made the World Series three years ago. But other than that, back to 1986, there's not all that much to celebrate. Uh, you did have a nice, um, you know, five-game five uh, knockout of the World Series from the Yankees uh, just about two decades ago. But other than that, not much for the Mets fans. Um, tell me that last night because I, of course, was clinging to my TV waiting for them to play. And, of course, Yankees, Mets never went off. Did you, even, did you try to go into the city or did you just decide, you know what, this doesn't look good? Oh, it wasn't good. I, I was amazed they didn't cancel it earlier. It was good. There was no way they were going to play it. It looked, it looked terrible. But that's what we talked about this on the show before. That's why baseball's got to play in dome stadiums because you can't just have all these games set, people planning to go and have these games rained out. And this is not, this is like one game in the summer. It doesn't happen as much. But certainly the early part of the year when baseball had the record number of rainouts, that is the problem. Well, and totally, you know, you think about just even the Northeast. Yankee Stadium, uh, City Field, you've also got uh, PNC Park, I'm not PNC Park, uh, Citizen Bank, where the Phillies play, you got Fenway, you've got uh, Camden Yards, all within maybe 300 miles of each other. One bad rainstorm for three days, you're raining out 15 games almost if everyone's home. You're right, Ira, they should be moving more towards this, especially with the times of the year that they play. Right. So I, I think that, I mean, I saw one of those predictions, and I, I believe it. in 20, 30 years, every baseball stadium will be domed. Uh, I think that has to be. Otherwise, they just have these rainouts. are just Because you look at the schedules now for these teams, there's, they're playing on off dates. They're, they're playing double headers. On, and, you know, teams are flying halfway across the country just to play one game and then back. It's, it's messing up their entire schedule. Yeah, I don't know when. Did they make an announcement date for when the makeup on this Yankees-Mets game will be? Because I don't anticipate them playing each other for the rest of the season, right? That's got to be just a one-day makeup. It's an off day. It's, it's, I think it's August 13th or somewhere. It's a, it's a date when they're both, it's like a Thursday or Friday, Thursday when they're both have an off day. It, so they, they did it that way. And it's unfortunate for the players because they're still getting to the stadium at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. They're still doing all their warm-ups like they're going to play. Now that's not an off day, and they're getting an off day taken away from them. 709 Iron Sports, 95.9 True Oldies Channel. We, we told you, huge, chap, uh, huge show on tap for you tonight. Ray Boom Boom Mancini, legendary boxer, going to join us right about 7.30. And then at 7.50... Ira, people may not know this name, but he's pretty influential. His name is Steve Hartman. You want to tell us just a little bit about him? Uh, Steve Hartman, I, I've talked to Steve an, a number of times. I think he's the number one Cleveland. I'm going to call. I said you are the number one Cleveland superfan, and he says he's not. But I, he's been to almost. He's been has season tickets for like 40 years to the Browns, to the Indians, and to the, uh, and, and and the Browns, the Indians, and Cavaliers, and was playing, seeing them when they played at Richfield Coliseum. Been to every World Series game, the seven games. I mean, he's he is he is a true uh, Cleveland diehard fan. He owns Contessa Art Galleries 
in Palm Beach and Cleveland. Uh, it goes between both cities. And we talk about uh, the Cleveland sports. I mean, the Indians are primed to be, they're going to be in the playoffs. They could be in the World Series this year. The, the Browns are the interesting team at Baker Mayfield. And of course, you know, with Cavs, that's all we've been talking about for the last uh, four years. So it, I think he has some interesting points and he's been to all the games and is, you know, very connected to the players and the owners. So I think it'll, for, I think it'll be very interesting to get some insights from him about Cleveland sports. Yeah, for him going back as far as he does with Cleveland sports, I got something I want to pick his brain on, Ira. When the Browns left, I mean, what was he thinking when those May- Mayflower trucks pulled up and all of a sudden the team's headed to Baltimore? And that's something, you know, a lot of people don't talk about, um, you know, it was 20, 20 years ago. Um, so I want to hear what people in Cleveland, the super fans, were thinking when the dog pound left. But let's get into it. Ira, you know, we were going crazy all weekend. And we saw a glimpse on Sunday afternoon of Tiger Woods being in the lead of a major on a Sunday. British opens in the book. Congratulations to Francisco Malinari, but heck of a weekend, Ira. Well, it's going to be great. And Boom Boom Mancini is a, probably one of the most famous Italians. So he's ecstatic that uh, Molinari won in terms of being you know, from Italy. And uh, so it'll be interesting to have and ask Ray's uh, opinion on Molinari. But wow, that's all I have to say. I mean... <laughs> I was, first of all, my entire Sunday was ruined because when Tiger at seven under, when he double bogeyed 11, I was like, no. <laughs> I felt like he could do it. He was all alone on the leaderboard. And I'm like, this could happen. Like, it could really, really happen. I mean, even Saturday night, he's at five under and Speed is at nine. And I'm saying, okay, he's, you know, Jordan Speed, he was afraid of Danny, uh, of Willett. You know, he, he um, collapsed at the Masters. So I, it, it, now he's going to have Tiger breathing down his neck. And then Speed collapsed. So we got Speed to collapse. But. Molinari's been the hottest golfer over the last three weeks, and you saw him in the Quicken Loans in the Tigers tournament. So Tigers saw him when he finished in fourth in that tournament, and he was at a 21-under, and the second place was 13-under. So everybody knows how well Molinari has been playing the last month. So as, the, as Sunday went on, I kept saying to myself, I'm nervous about Molinari, I'm nervous about Molinari, and he ended up winning. And it, it was weird for as much drama, McElroy making that eagle uh, on, uh, on 14 and then, and then having uh, uh, Spieth in there and, and Tiger, it was almost that ending was like, eh, not much. He just wins by two strokes, and it wasn't, it wasn't, it could, that, that could have been Spieth and McElroy in a playoff, and it was just Molinari winning by two strokes on the 18th hole. So. Uh, Ira, you know, it's one of the, um, it, it totally was an exciting weekend, and you were in, in the camp with everybody else, like, once Tiger got there, this could happen. You brought up something, though, and I don't want to touch on it for too long, but Jordan Spieth, do you think he's beginning to build a reputation as someone who can't close it out? I mean, nobody's ever going to forget Sunday at the Masters, uh, the 12th hole, when he put up, what, a 10, you know, or an 11? Nobody's going to forget that, but now we're starting to see a pattern. Granted, the you know the fall apart at Carnoustie, not the same as it was at Augusta, but do you think he's starting to build that rep? I don't think he's giving that rep. I think Jordan Spieth is who Jordan Spieth is. Uh, Jordan Spieth is, you can see, he started to rush. He starts to putt. I mean, you can see just, I mean, he's like, he, I, would, I would bet that he'd be before Mickelson if the ball's going over the green that he would jump and try to hit it. Because he, on some of the putts, you, that's where he was, he went 224 holes without three putting, and then he started at like two, three putts. Um, he was playing great. I mean, he was playing great for three days. I, I won't say he can't close, but... Definitely, this is another situation. I mean, he's putting himself in there. He's he's playing, but I, you get the pressure got to him on Sunday, and I, I was I would hope the pressure from I said Spieth is dealing with Tiger pressure, and I, a lot of my <laughs> friends were texting me, "Is Tiger going to deal with Tiger pressure?" So I thought that was funny. Well, before we move on, I do want to talk about Carnoustie itself for a minute. But speaking about Tiger pressure, do you think that there was some of that floating around on Sunday? I mean, I know Kevin Kisner went in at the lead, didn't look like uh, you know the same golf he was playing for three days in, he even still finished second, but he had a good little command on that. Do you think that the Tiger effect kicked in on Sunday for some of these golfers? Well, I think it was cool because Spieth has kept saying, oh, I wish I could play with Tiger yep. on Sunday in a major. Wouldn't that be great? You know, but almost in a way, it's like uh, LeBron saying, oh, I, I wish I could go with Jordan. Like, maybe he and I could play a game, you know, in a game set of the NBA Finals. Like, it wasn't going to happen. Well, like, Spieth got what he wanted. There was Tiger on Sunday in a major. So you got what you wanted, and you were a little nervous about it. I don't know. I mean, I think that some people say, well, Rory came out today saying, well, people aren't as afraid of Tiger. And I don't know if they were ever 
are so afraid. But Spieth definitely collapsed and uh, and didn't play terrible on Sunday, shooting a 77. I think he shot a set, yeah, 76 on Sunday. But um, I, I, it was it was great. And the, wearing the red and black, I, he walks on the course. I just how he his management. It was so exciting. And one of my friends are like, "Well, this is the Tiger show," and I'm like, I, I text them back and go, "What else would they show the Tiger all the time?" It was it was great. You know, it's funny that you bring it up, and I noticed a lot of the people that did struggle on Sunday, knowing that Tiger Woods was content. Where are the big names? I mean, you didn't see, I mean, with the exception of Rose and McElroy, a lot of the people that played through Xander Schauffele, um, Kevin Chappell, um, you know, guys like this, Fino, um, Webb Simpson, guys that aren't really affected by that. The people that we've been talking a lot about, though, some of the bigger name golfers, the Zach Johnsons, Adam Scotts, Jason Day, they seem to not be able to get it together. So, Ira, maybe it's that effect that when you're a small time player and you think nobody on TV knows you anyways, you don't really worry about it. But when you are a bigger name, a Jordan Spieth, Maybe this is in the back of your head a little bit? Well, I, Molinari has helped because I watched the whole Quick and Loans tournament, and he was playing. I mean, Tiger was, he was, he, he was there, so he saw Tiger. He beat Tiger by nine strokes yes. at Quick and Loans. So he was playing one, one group ahead of Tiger for two rounds. So I think he was used to that. He's also playing extremely well, and he has a very, like, well, what attitude. You know, it was a very, like, his attitude is cool. I, I think Molinari is a very calm, cool, collected guy, and I didn't, don't think it bothered him. I, I think Rory, though, what happened, I, I predicted where he was going to win the tournament. You did. And he started out on Sunday with the two bogeys on two and five, and that sort of put him out of the mix. Now, he was out. They weren't even showing him on TV, and so I'm following him where he's at because he had two birdies then on nine and 11. But that eagle putt on 15, when he gave that fist pump, and then suddenly he's back in the mix. He's at six under. So it was exciting because it was like Rory was out, no pressure, and then he made that eagle, and suddenly, well, he went from four to six, so maybe he has a shot. But um, I, the one thing that was surprising is that I mean, Justin Thomas and, uh, and Dustin Johnson, one and two in the world, they don't even make I know. The, the weekend. I mean, yeah. and, and, and again, that's the problem. I mean, Tiger, when he was number one, I mean, he made every cut. Not to make a, a, the cut in a major. Um, and Thomas... Was, was over the cut line, but he bogeyed two of the last three holes and wasn't able to make it. Now, I know Thomas and Dustin Johnson are the betting favorites. They played all, they play great, but you really need to make that cut. You need, especially in a tournament like this, where the wind can, you never know what could happen. The scores could go either way. The idea that you're not, you're going to miss a cut in this tournament by one stroke, it's, it's ridiculous. You've got to make that cut because even if you just barely make the cut, you could win this tournament. People have come back from nine and eight under, eight back and nine back and won this tournament. So it was a poor job by Dustin Johnson and Dustin. Justin Thomas for not making it. You know, Ira, though, that's a show that you brought up um, months ago. It's a point that you brought up on this show months ago about how Tiger Woods could be down four strokes from the cut line on on uh, Friday, and he's going to go out and birdie the last four holes. I don't know if these golfers have that intensity. Uh, Dustin Johnson, when he's dialed in, best golfer in the world. Outside of that, I don't know if he's looking to make moves like that. I don't think he has that in him, and maybe that's the difference between these golfers. You mentioned Vegas, too, and how betting odds are going. I want to talk about that in just a second here on Ira on Sports, 718-959, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike. I'm here with you as well. Uh, on the way, 730, we're going to have uh, Roy uh, Ray Bam Bam Mancini join us. Also at 750, a Cleveland superfan Steve Hartman popping in. Ira, first, and uh, you know, this is a Lynx course. I'm a big golfer, and just until a few years ago, I didn't know the difference between a Lynx course and, you know, most of the courses we play here in America. Do you want to give everyone just a, qu a quick rundown on what the differences are here? Because it looks different on TV. <laughs> Everyone is saying, "Don't they water the grass? Like, why aren't they watering exactly. the grass? Like, why? Why can't I see? Why is it all brown? This looks like a terrible course." Well, Lynx courses are mainly because they're found on the on the water, and they're and they're so you can have Lynx courses in the United States also. Uh, but like Pebble Beach is on the yeah. water, could be a Lynx course, but it isn't because they have beautiful fairways and they water the fairways. But typically, they don't water the fairways at all. There's pot bunkers and not normal bunkers that are there, and uh, there's no the it's very windy because there's no trees because it's right on the coastline. Um, and that's why, I mean, Shinnecock could technically have been a Lynx course to some extent because there are no trees. And, mm -hmm. and, and Oakmont, because it's not on the water, but they took all the trees down. So unlike the Masters, that has trees everywhere and beautiful flowers and those. But now the Greens did, unlike other British Opens, if you saw the Greens, the Greens are watered and they look green. So it was easy to see because there's sometimes these British Opens, you can't, you can't see where the ball is even when they're putting. Yeah. So, and they, and, uh, but that's sort of what the Lynx courses are. But what the weather plays a huge role because it's right on the water and there's no trees to break it, so the winds can shift constantly. It's, it definitely makes for interesting golf. 
Americans, though, Ira, they have issues playing in tournaments like this. So I want to ask you, why do you think that is? We saw everyone from Tiger Woods practicing with fairway, I mean, um, fairway irons, high irons, like one irons, which is the equivalent angle of using a driver. But in iron form, Americans just seem to have issues maybe overseas or maybe just with the Lynx courses. But I want to give you this stat, Ira. Americans were 3-1 to one to win the British Open. The, you could take everybody else, everybody not born in America, and they were even money. And I'm thinking, man, the best golfers in the world are all, with the exception of Rory McIlroy, this list is all Americans. They know Americans can't seem to play on these courses, I. Well, I think because they, and that's one thing I heard some commentators say today, that Tiger is probably best at the British Open because he's not driving as far, which I thought is ridiculous because his, his, his stats were still in the top 15 in terms of driving. So I don't think it's that, but they're like, well, this plays well because you don't have to drive so well. You actually hit, hit to a spot. Um, I, I, I thought it was interesting that Thomas, Spieth, Fowler, Duffner, Zach Johnson, and Jimmy Walker all lived in the same house. They called it the fun house, and they all were together in a house uh, practicing soccer, hitting stuff. All and I was like, Tiger Woods would be the last person in that house. Like, there's no way that Tiger <laughs> is in a house with other golfers at a major. I mean, he would be in a house if it was a miniature golf open or whatever with all these guys. But I, I don't know if that took the edge off. I mean, I thought that was interesting that you had uh, six of the top Americans all in the same house together uh, with uh, getting ready for the open. Zach Johnson and Jimmy Walker seem like interesting throw-ins there. We know Thomas Spieth, Fowler, Duffner. They are the party boys. Um, you know, for lack of a better word, they enjoy this stuff. Didn't see Zach Johnson and Jimmy Walker finding their way into the house. Tiger Woods, I think there's no chance that you saw him there. He had his yacht probably parked out in uh, whatever Scottish bay they have right there. 721, Iron Sports. Well, Eddie, uh, uh, Mike, Eddie Pepperell yes. quoted, you know, he shot a 67 on Sunday. And they ask him, they go, they, they go, you know, he goes, I could have shot a better score, but I got drunk the night before. <laughs> you know, he finished in sixth, in sixth place. He admitted to getting drunk the night before. He goes, if I wasn't so hungover, I would have might, might have shot a better score. And he was only two strokes off or three strokes off of the lead. Well, Ira, <laughs> so it's like when the Honda hilarious. Classics here in Palm Beach Gardens and we're hanging out at Ibar till 10 o'clock at night with Lee Westwood. And you, you know what I mean? Luke Donald and, and Justin Rose, they're all hanging out at Ibar getting ready for the next day. I guess it's one of the perks of uh, being a golfer, isn't it? You know, one of my favorite things about golf is crazy shots. And the Open Championship, the British Open, never short of them. I've mentioned on this show before, I'll never forget John Vandeveld in 1999 just hitting what seemed like 50 shots in a row from the water with his pants pulled up. Brooks Kepka, our own boy from Wellington, Cardinal Newman grad, he had some interesting shots as well. Well, I think the I think this is where they should actually carry slippers in their bag or or like <laughs> sandals. How about water sandals? Because it's they have there's there's little creeks and, uh, that go around there that you that that you can actually try to hit out of if the water isn't so deep. Yeah. So that's what people are trying to do. They take the shoes up, they roll their pants up, and then they try to hit out. And uh, Garcia had one. Garcia actually had a great shot out of the stream. It was, it was pretty good. But Kepka, I think I saw Kepka hit two shots where he was on his knees hitting the shot. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it's not like a normal game. He's literally on his knees with the club. It's almost like a baseball bat uh, hitting, hitting, hitting two shots. So it was, I mean, the whole day it was um, um, Shoffley was hitting out of the bunker and they were saying, wow, he does Pilates, and it's perfect for this, because he had like one leg on top of the bunker, <laughs> one leg down, and he was hitting up. He actually had two great shots because of it. But that's, it, is, it is interesting to see people hit out the water all the time. It's what makes it fun. And, you know, I'm sure um, growing up, Brooks Kepper didn't have many opportunities like that playing at Okahili Park and at Southwind. So it's nice to see, uh, you know, a local West Palm kid really just... Uh, overbearing the field sometimes as, as he comes up and we get to watch him grow uh, here on Iron Sports. Five minutes until we're joined by Ray Boom Boom Mancini. Got a lot of fun to talk uh, with him about. But let's talk about Tiger here uh, just for a little bit, Ira. You had to be impressed with just the way he looked. He had that dialed-in Tiger look that we come to love. Yeah, I think, well, I thought it was great. He had, bo- he had those two bogeys on, on, on Friday. And then he came back with two birdies because I thought that there was where he was going to be. You didn't know where the cut line was going to be. He was probably he could have been two over, and it looked like he was flirting with the cut line. It could have been a disaster, but he fought to be in there. And then Saturday he had a tiger round. He had five under. It was shot 
shot had an amazing day. It seemed like it was a five under day that he could have really made it eight or nine. Like he just shot, could have shot a sixty two because he was missing some birdie putts by an inch, and he didn't ever look like he was uh, you know in trouble anywhere on, on Saturday, which led himself. Uh, I mean, he had five birdies in 11 holes. Now, that, everybody was scoring well. He came out early on, on, he was earlier on Saturday, so he had five birdies on 11 holes. But, I, and, and then you sort of said, well, other people are going to take it up. So at one point, he was getting close to the lead, but then Spieth, you know, gets to nine. But at the end of the day, at five, Spieth was at nine. And you're like, he's in, you know, he said, I want to be like four strokes from the lead at least. And that's where he was. So he was in good position on Sunday. Let's talk, uh, you know, about what you think happened. Obviously, that double on 11, that that set him back badly. Did you think, you know, going into that, that Tiger was about to take over and win this? Uh, what was in your head, I? Well, I, I did, because I felt like there was... I, he caught speed. That's when you, when you watch golf, what's interesting about it is that one, one guy can birdie and others bogey. <laughs> and so if you look at it as a two-stroke lead, but two strokes could be even immediately, or the one or the way of the double bogey. And, I mean, there was that one period of time where Spieth double bogeyed. Spieth had a bogey, and, uh, and suddenly Tiger's at seven. Spieth is at five, and uh, I think Shoffley was at six. And, uh, and Tiger's all by himself, and he's sitting there by himself, and then he got aggressive on 11. I mean, he was, he was in a position where he could have had an easier shot, at worst take a bogey on that hole, and he gets a double bogey, and then he fell to 5, and then, and then 4. He just he couldn't, it, 11 and 12, and, and it just was, he couldn't, then, he couldn't birdie. And, I, and everyone said, well, he played terrible on Sunday. He didn't really play, he didn't play terrible on Sunday. He played great on Sunday. He just had a couple bad shots, and the bad shots were on 11. Maybe he was, he was very, playing conservatively, on Thursday and Friday. Saturday, he was more aggressive. And then Sunday, I think he played perfectly until 11, where he felt like the, the hole before that, the hole before he double bogeyed was, um, uh, he was, uh, he, he, he was, he was in, he was in the bunker and there was a water and he, and they said, boy, this can be, and they said, this is the biggest shot Tiger's had in five years. And he got it over the water on the green. Now he just parred the hole, but I'm like, wow, I think that gave him confidence to then be more aggressive. And he wasn't able to, able to do that. He did that on 10. And then after 11, he got the double bogey. You know, I, I, I have to agree with you 100%. I think he kind of took it easy on Thursday and Friday. And, you know, friends of mine, and we're, you know, we're all talking, uh, you, Sean, and I, in a group text. You know, Tiger looks okay, but I think you're right. I think he was playing it cool. He was going to make his move on moving day on Saturday. And yet, you know, outside of the 11th and 12th holes, I don't think there's much else he could have done to win. Molinari's playing fantastic. Let's take the other side of the coin, though. Uh, Kevin Kisner, he was your leader through three days. What do you think happened to him on Sunday that he couldn't? I mean, listen, you still finished at the top. You finished second. But a lot of golfers are going to win that tournament with that lead. What do you think happened to Kisner? The double bogey on two. When he started out with that, the double bogey and bogey, it just, I think that's what McElroy, too, these early bogeys put them behind, and then they were just sort of, it, it almost, it was a, it's almost it was more like a NASCAR race, where it seemed like at a point in the round, you weren't going to catch Molinari and you were going to stand behind it, but even though he's a couple strokes ahead, it wasn't like he was, I mean, he didn't make a bogey the whole day. I mean, he had one yeah. birdie and no bogeys, and he was just going to play that way, and it was really hard to pass him, and hard to get through past him, and I think when these guys did the bogeys and double bogeys and got behind him, it was hard to go, you know, hard to hard to get the, I mean, you could get a birdie on 14. So people, everybody seemed to be birding 14, which is a par five, but that wasn't enough. You know, they were saying going into the weekend, a lot of reports were coming out. I didn't watch much golf Thursday and Friday. I'm here at the True Oldies channel, super busy. Didn't get to watch that much golf, but they said the Tiger kind of left a lot out there um, as far as par fives that he should have birdied and settled for a par, even eagled and settled for, you know, a par. Did you seem to, to see that, or is it just him playing cool? What, what do you think happened on Thursday and Friday that put him, what was he, seven strokes off the pace on Saturday? I think he used his driver four times on Thursday and Friday, and then on Saturday he used it six times. So I think he started, but I think the key to the British Open is is that the holes that you can score on, you've got to be aggressive on, and the holes that are dangerous that could cause a lot of those double bogeys, you've got to be conservative on. And I think that he played it smart. I mean, Tiger's the smartest golfer out there, and I think he played everything smart, except, I mean, he, for himself. I mean, he had one hole that was bad. I, I, the, I, I, these commentators they said, do you think Tiger can win a major? What do you mean, win a major? He was, he was an inch away. He was almost ready to win this major. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt that he's going to win majors. I mean, at least be in contention. I mean, if it's something that doesn't break that way, but he is 
back playing at a very high level at the highest, maybe the best in the game right now consistently. So, of course, he's going to be in the mix to win majors. He can. The question, can he win a major? Of course he can win a major. Ira, that is exactly my thoughts throughout the entire weekend. As people are still all over social media and just the media in general. Can Tiger win another one? What do you mean can he win another one? He was in contention on a Sunday at the Open. He's been top 26 times since he came back. This guy's playing good. What do you think his odds are uh, to win the uh, win the uh, uh, PGA uh, tournament coming up? He's 16-1, to 1, which, I mean, obviously, you know, in old days he would have been 3-1, to 1, but I, I even think 16-1 to is a little high. I'd have it more around the 10-1. to 1. I'm going to put... The you know the um, I'm gonna put Justin Thomas in front of him. I'm gonna put DJ in front of him. But after that, who can you bet on, Ira? But after Tiger or before Tiger Woods in that situation? Well, I think people are concerned because he's gonna have to drive better and drive. It's just a further driving holes. But he has Firestone the week before, which he's won eight times. So I mean, anyone is like Nadal at the French Open. I mean, if he, when you get to that level, when you when you've won those tournaments, uh, you know, over five six times. Uh, he it's gonna it's the last time he's gonna be played in Akron at the Firestone. So I think he's gonna I'm, I hope to make that tournament. It's actually one or two days. So I want to go to see him there. But he has a great shot to win that. And then I think going to the PGA. I think yeah, seventeen to one. I, I'm not betting against Tiger Woods now. He's healthy. <laughs> he's moving around the course. He's not limping. He's hitting great shots. He's making the and he's smart and intelligent. I think that intelligence level is gonna come come into play. And uh, as I said, a lot of people said next year is the year he starts to win that. I still think he can win this major, and he's going to win a lot more, and he could win a couple golf tournaments this year. I, I hope he does rack up a couple. I believe the tournament that he plays next week, I, I'm not sure the name of, he's won quite a few times, um, this one coming up. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, you probably know the name of it, but Ira, before we get to uh, Ray Boom Boom Mancini, who's holding on the line, Jim Furyk, you know, he's the, uh, he's the captain of our Ryder Cup team. He says with Tiger Woods, we're going to handle him like anyone else. Do you think that's the truth, Ira, or do you think that Tiger has to be on the Ryder Cup team? I I think they're just saying that. I mean, there's there's no doubt that Tiger Woods is on the Ryder Cup team. I don't know. I, I think that's ridiculous. I, I, of course, he's going to be on the Ryder Cup team. I mean, if he's healthy and he can play, uh, the, how he's played the last month, there's no other. Well, there's no. Of course, he has to be on the Ryder Cup team. I think Europe <laughs> just said that for I don't know information purposes. I don't know. They do do stuff like that, and of course, they can't say you know where. Tiger Woods is an automatic in, even though he's been playing just as good as any other American um, in, well, in the I, world. I guarantee, you that, I guarantee you that NBC would mandate that he puts him on, because uh, how many more people are going to watch it if Tiger Woods is playing the Ryder Cup rather than uh, Kevin Kisner or someone like that? So. I, I could see NBC executives posted up outside Jim Furyk's house at 5 in the morning. Like, you know what you're doing today. 7.32, Ira on Sports, 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Mike Balsamo here with you as well. On the line with us. You know who he is. Legendary boxer, Ray uh, Boom Boom Mancini. Ray, I want to thank you so much for joining us today here on Iron Sports. Thanks for making the time. I appreciate you having me. No, we appreciate you. Um, So let me tell you first and foremost, (laughs) Boom Boom, I'm 100% Italian. You think it's fair to say? Uh, hey, you, go. you think it's fair to say you're the greatest <laughs> Italian American athlete ever? Mike Piazza's listening right now, and he's a little pissed off. But I think you no, might be Mike, it. Boom, boom. Mike's my. I love Mike. He's my brother. He's a, he's a. He's great. Not only does Mike is he great? Was he a great athlete? He's a better person, and he's a better person, and that's what makes him so special. And he's now and he's a great advocate now for not only for the Italo American for Italo uh, heritage. But all for all little Americans, he's a great role model. You know, in, in, you know, um, he's done it the right way. He's done it the right way, and I'm, I truly admire him. Well, uh, you know, Boom Boom, you've done it the right way as well. Your career is fantastic. Uh, tons of titles, th- uh, 34, uh, 29 wins and 34 fights. Ira, Boom Boom is your boy. What do you got for him? Ray, thank you again for coming on the show. Um, your fight, you're, you're the lightweight champion of the world from 82 to 84, your fight with Alexis Aguayo, when people say, I mean, I went back, when I know you were coming on the show, and I was looking at, you do like top 20 fights of all time. That fight is almost everybody's top 20 Always. fight. Yeah. Um, even today, do you, I mean, do people come up to you and say, and I remember I was like 13 years old. It was on Wide World of Sports. I didn't have to get pay-per-view, not on HBO. It was like anybody could watch it. And I remember when it was on, all my friends were like calling like you know, not on the cell phone, on the hardline phone, and they're like, "Watch this fight! It was tremendous." Uh, do you want to talk about the fight for a second? 
Oh, of course, of course. So it's funny, you know, it's funny how Wild World Sports is so ingrained in the public's mind because that was where the only station that fights around for so long. But I actually found on CBS Sports Spectacular. See, that's what people forget, that in, the, er, er, in 1981, CBS got in the fight game. And they were going to do a tournament, and they, they want to showcase the lightweights. Oh, man, I hit the juggernaut. So I was actually, CBS was my network. But, you know, that, so uh, I actually fought, and I fought on NBC a couple of times. I never fought on ABC. Always wanted to, but I never did. So it's, it's, CBS has been, was my network. And, um, but at that time, when I fought Alexis, that was part of the tournament. I had beaten uh, Jorge Morales for the North American title, NABF title. And um, then I uh, fought Jose Luis Ramirez to defend my title. Now, everybody thought Morales was going to beat me because nobody wanted to fight him. That's how I got in tournament. We said, we'll take the fight. And I was like, I think number 10 at the time in the, in the, in the, in the country, <laughs> in the world, whatever, at the time, number 10. And then I fought Morales and I stopped him in the ninth round. And then I got me to fight with uh, Jorge Luis, uh, Jose Luis Ramirez, who was ranked number three in the world at the time. And the funny thing is he, he had over 70-something fights. I only had 19 going into, uh, after going into that fight. And he had already fought Alexis. He had actually fought Alexis down in uh, Miami, Florida. He dropped Alexis twice. And by most standards, he should have got the decision. Wow. But he lost a split decision. He lost a split decision to Alexis down in Miami. Which is, you know, which is like Maslow being in Nicaragua. So uh, that's why everyone thought he was going to blow me out, and then they'd have the rematch. And then, of course, I wound up shooting the shutout against him because style-wise, you know, he was perfect. He was made for me. But, um, and that's why, um, then the fight with Alexis, I was only, two, everyone thinks, even to this day, people say to me, do you, do you think you're ready for that fight? You only had 20 fights. I said, let me tell you something. I beat the number six contender. I beat the number three contender. Where am I supposed to go? And, and then what are you going to say? <laughs> no, I don't want to fight. I'll, I'll wait the next time around. There is no next time. I, I tell people, ask my father how many t- opportunities you get. That, that, people, this, it, boggles, it boggles my mind that people think, you know, to be the best, you want to fight the best. To fight, that's it. To be the best, you got to beat the best. So, um, I, I, you know, that's why you fight. I fought Lexus. I felt I, I, had a, I thought I was younger, I was stronger, I, and I thought I'd catch up. And this is what I always tell people. Why the true championship distance always will be, always has been, always will be 15 rounds. Because if I had 12 rounds like, like it is now, I, I, I win the title. I beat him. I was winning after 12 rounds. You were phenomenal so, in the later rounds, too. Pardon me? You were phenomenal in later rounds, too. You could always outlast the guy. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, that was it. But Lexus, see, that was the thing about Lexus. I always tell people Lexus was, so, well, maybe Lexus so, such a great fighter is, He'd set traps early in the fight. Then he'd go back later in the fight and see if them traps caught. You know what I mean? He was excellent at setting guys up. And and I tell people all the time, I made him miss a thousand right hands. I made him miss a thousand. <laughs> I mean that. I made him move, uh, whatever, a hundred right hands that fight. But it only takes one. And and, and, little, and I watch, if I just watched the fight later on, I don't have him watched in a while, but as I was watched the fight afterwards, I realized he was what he was doing to me. He was creating that distance little by little. He was he was separating himself from me. So even though I was making a miss, little by little, he was setting he was setting the, you know setting the distance up. And that was the one thing I'd say. I, I, that was an experience. An experience should would let me know that I got to stay on top of him, keep pressing the attack, smothering them, not, not giving them that distance. But that's an experience, and, and it cost me. Ray, Ray, the desire, the. Uh, the one surprising thing for a fight that you know everyone has in their top 10, 20 fights of all time, it's surprising that because you have these rematches after rematch after rematch, um, you never had a rematch. There was never another fight. No. Uh, what, what happened? Why, why was well, why because after that? <laughs> what happened was what? I, after that, um, I had come back and I won two fights. And then I got an opportunity to fight for the NB. Lexus was moving up. Lexus was moving up. So I had a uh, opportunity to fight for the uh, WBA title against Arturo Frias, and that came up, and we said, yeah, absolutely, we wanted opportunity, and of course I did, and I won the fight. And naturally, I asked for the rematch right away, but Lexus was already moving up. He had already planned to, he was, you know, it was too big, hard for him to make the weight. And we, we had talked about him staying down for, for another fight for the, for the unification, but he just couldn't do it. So he moved up. 
And uh, first he fought Kevin Rooney, I think, in a non-title fight, you know, 10 rounds. And he knocked Kevin Rooney out in two or three rounds or whatever. And then um, that's when he fought Aaron Pryor. And um, so it had been talked about for a long time. But, I, I mean, I wanted, you know, look, like I said, he beat me. I finally won about, you know, the title. But I wanted the chance to unify the title by getting the guy. And now I felt I had a little more experience. I thought, I, I, I thought I'd beat him. I thought I'd beat him. But he moved up, and and you know, opposite the rest of his history, he you know, he fought, and everyone thought he was going to beat prior. And then we thought, well, we could unify two fights. You know, we move, I'd move up and fight him for the for his title. My title would both be at stake. You know, the WBA titles, the junior, the lightweight and junior lightweight title. But obviously, it never materialized. So anybody, so, Ray, yeah. anybody who watches, they should just YouTube this fight and watch it because it is phenomenal. I watched it again today, and. Compare your style. I mean, your style was certainly, we're going for it. And you fought Alexis in Atlantic City. I have never heard the place. It was so loud on TV. I remember when I watched it, it was loud. I watched it again. The fans are going crazy. You're an aggressive fighter. Compare yourself to today, Mayweather. You know, some of the fighters today, they're, they're like, I'm, you threw in one round more punches than Mayweather might throw an entire team <laughs> like, you know. Well, first of all, you know, I don't try to, you know, I mean, I don't get it, to be honest with you, with a lot of fighters. I mean, right, I was an aggressive fighter. I, I come forward, and I watch a lot of these fighters now. They're supposedly aggressive fighters. And the one thing I learned, and that was the one thing that Murphy Griffith, my trainer, taught me. Ray, if you're going to come forward, you've got to use your jab. You've got to set – same thing. And these guys don't use their jab. And, or they, if they use it, they use it as a pawing jab, not to, not to score points or not to hurt the other guy with. Yeah, my just pawing at him. Taught me, Murphy Griffith taught me. Use the jab first as a punishment, you know, to hurt the guy with it, but also to find where he's at to create the distance, create the distance. Even when they're backing up on you, you keep throwing it out there to create the distance so you know when you're getting close enough. And um, I, I just about, it, it baffles me that how many guys are not trained well. You know, people always say, uh, but the great trainers, there's no great trainers out there. There's maybe one or two. Freddie Roach is a great trainer because he's, he's been proven across the board because he's worked with different fighters and they've all got, you know, everyone succeeded. But and the only other one I can think of is maybe Buddy McGirt. But other than that, there's no, there's no good trainers out there, great trainers. There's a couple good ones, but they're not great. And I, I just never understood um, why these guys never got taught the correct way. When you're coming forward, you've got to use the jab. And, and even when you're and when it, and you have to create the distance, you've got to cut off the ring. But then a lot of guys again, they don't know how to cut off the ring. I just I, I just the, the basics and, and all the kind of fundamentals are not taught anymore. We are speaking with Ray Boom Boom Mancini here on Ira on Sports. It's seven forty two. Mike Balsamo here as well. True Oldies Channel. Um, we've only got like another minute or two left. Boom Boom. Ira, you have any other questions? Yeah, Ray, I was just going to ask you about, you're so proud of Youngstown. You did a movie, you're uh, running a production company, and did uh, the movie called Youngstown Still Standing. I mean, you think about all the college coaches that are coaching from Stoops to to Fellini, everybody that came from Youngstown. You're from Youngstown, Kelly Pavlik from Youngstown. What is it that the, it seems like every 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 now and then, I mean, it seems like there's it, for as small as Youngstown is, it's producing a lot of great athletes. Well, for Youngstown, you know, people think it's a small town, but actually, you know, at its at its, at its peak, it was a uh, you know two hundred fifty thousand people. Now we're at our lowest in the city proper. We're about sixty thousand, but with the surrounding suburbs, we're still about one hundred fifty thousand proper. But let me give you another statistic. Not only are we the only city of our size to have five world champions. And as you said, all the D1 coaches, most of, all of us went to the same high school. I went oh, wow. to high school. I grew up with Bobby Stoops. Bobby Stoops and Mike Stoops. The Stoops brothers grew up on the next street over Cabasa Down. We went to grade school together. We went to high school together. So we, his parents, my parents were picking us up since we were in grade school. And so uh, Michael, you're younger than me. Bobby, you're older than me. When I, we were in, when I was in seventh grade, Bobby was in eighth grade. We, we won the league championship. We were undefeated. We were starting point guards. And then when I was in eighth grade, Michael was in seventh. We were starting point guards, and we lost one game, and that was a championship. So I've known them my whole life. And then, of course, the Pelinis. I went to school with the Pelinis. I graduated with John Pelini, uh, Bo Pelini's older, older brother. There's not, seven in that family, five brothers, two sisters. So, I mean, 
we all know each other, and but not only do we know each other, we, most, we, most of us went to the same high school. So it, it's a unique town. Not only not only the Pelini brothers, the, the the Bartlow family, the owners of the Forty ers from Youngstown, of course. Denise DeBarlow and, and Eddie DeBarlow Jr. went to the same, went to my high school, Cardinal Mooney High School. So it's a unique place to grow up. It's a unique, uh, um, there's a new, uh, unique fabric to, to the people in this town. You know, hardworking, blue collar town. We're the second biggest steel producing city in the world. That's the Pittsburgh in our heyday. So people understand what hard work it'll get you. Success equals hard work, or hard work equals success. I should say. So that's that's part of who we are. That's part of our fabric of who we are. And boom, boom, you couldn't that's have great. Ray, 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 I, Ray. I, I heard, I saw a statistic that said that you you were somehow able to keep seventy five percent of all the money you earned when you were, and then you yeah. have a number of business projects since, which you can talk. But that's pretty pretty impressive considering boxing. You know how you know the managers and the promoters and everything like right. that. So you had a business mind. You're you're in your twenties, and you have a business mind back yeah. then. So what are some of the projects you've been working on? You know the last few years in terms of I, I saw you with with own a cigar company, some movie production facilities. Well, I met, my film companies are my are my are my two main focuses. Uh, my film production company. I was you know I was in Los Angeles for thirty years. I've learned the business. I produced uh, for MGM. My last film got bought by Warner Brothers. So I've 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 sat with studio heads and look with you know understand what type of films they're looking to make to sell to the public. I've sat with uh, financiers. Look what kind of projects they're looking for for their investors. And I've sat with the distributors, and as we all know, distribution is key in this world for any product. And distributors, what kind of projects they need to sell to their audience? You know, certain, you know, it's a, it's it's a business. I always tell people it's called show business for a reason because business comes before, long before the show, and you got to learn the business side of it. And, and same thing in boxing. You know, I, I, was, I was one thing I would say I'm not the smartest guy, but I was smart enough to have people. Uh, Work with people who are smarter than myself and learn from them. That's an Italian and thing. Business, the, and the best thing I learned, best thing I learned for, from business and any business, and you guys can test it in your business or whatever. Let those who do do. Let those who do do. I don't do what you do. Let go do your. Let me do what I do. If you, if I'm trying to micromanage your job and you, it don't work. You hire people because they're good at what they do. Let let those who do do. And if you do, and if I follow that simple principle, most often not, you're going to come out okay, because people feel confident and they feel like that's that's the synergy. That's why it's a team effort. Um, well, thank you, Ray. You've been awesome. I really appreciate you uh, you coming on. Before you go, my last question will be: Triple G sure. and Canelo. Who's your pick in September? Uh, triple, triple G will beat him before. He'll beat him better this time. He'll beat him better this time. You know, I, what people don't say is, in Triple G, he didn't say himself. Look, if you watch the fight, as a fighter, he looked stale. He looked very stale at the end. Triple G couldn't turn the juice on when he needed to. And I tell people, being stale, being overtrained and undertrained have a lot of the same symptoms. The difference is, when you're undertrained, you have no gas in a tank. When you're overtrained, you've got gas in a tank, but it's one speed. You can't change speeds. You could see he was in shape, but he couldn't change speeds at the end like he normally does. And, then, and if you hear... They always talk about how he's in the gym. He's a gym rat. He, he, he trains with the other guys. Even between fights, he's up in the in, in the mountains. With the why? There's no need to be. Abel Sanchez should know not to tell him to stay away from the gym. So I think they've learned from that mistake, and I think he'll beat him easier this time. Boom, boom. I want to thank you so much for popping by here on Iron Sports. I got one more question for you though before I let you go. Sure, sure. So you're a sure. ridiculously good-looking guy, all Italian like me. I'm five <laughs> five and a half. So do you think maybe would you like to go on a little competition to see who's the best looking guy under five six uh, here in America from Italian descent? Because hey, I'll take you on, Boom Boom. Hey, as my father said, I got punched in the shape. <laughs> <laughs> he is Ray Boom Boom Mancini. Thank you so much for popping by here. You're always welcome here on Iron Sports. What a great well, interview! Just to say, have me back. I'd love to come back. Have me back. Hit me up again. Let me. Let's do it again. Boom Boom. Uh, you're always welcome. We got a lot more to talk about. Yes, Ray, I would love to have you back. I, I, we, we, we have much more boxing to get to, so I can't wait. We'll have yeah. you, in a couple of weeks, we'll have you back on again. Thank you so okay, much. Okay, I look forward to it. I look forward to it. Ira, I look forward Thank to putting maybe much. some side-by-side okay, pictures of me and him up 
And we'll see, you know, who really is the best-looking uh, guy under 5'6", Italian-American in America. 749, that's what we talk about here on Ira on Sports, 95.9. True Oldies Channel, you know, we've got the uh, amazing topics coming for you. Mike Balsamo here as well. We're going to have um, Steve Hartman, your Cleveland super fan, joining us in just a minute. I've got... So many compelling questions for him as well. Ira, a lot going on before we get to Steve. You want to touch on the All-Star game or maybe jump into the NBA because we really didn't see Kawhi Leonard coming. Um, let's, let's do the NBA right now for a second. Kawhi Leonard. We, we talked about on this show for weeks. Where is this guy going to end up? I don't think anybody thought it was going to be in the only team not playing in America, the Toronto Raptors. Ira, what do you think about this? I think it was it was ridiculous. I think I I am so against this trade. I I, I just I I was mad about it because to, I, more for Demar Derozan and what Toronto did. Oh, ridiculous. I just don't think it made it. It just didn't make any sense at all to for, to, to the trade. I, he Demar Derozan. First of all, Toronto did not have a bad year. Toronto had the second best record in the NBA. They were they were they they, they they the last three years they've had one of the best records in the NBA. They just lose to LeBron. They made it to Western Conference Eastern Conference Finals. DeRozan has averaged seventy eight games the last three years, scoring twenty three, twenty, twenty four, twenty seven, and twenty three. Eighty three percent foul shooter. Uh, he started shooting threes at the end of the last year and uh, and, and 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 proved that. They signed to a five year contract. Uh, there's two years. You know, two years ago, they made him the center of the franchise. Now, look, they beat the Wizards this year. They had a great year. They are so close. Why would you blow this team up? DeRozan is a superstar. He wanted to be there. He wanted to be in Toronto. He gets along with Kyle Lowry. You have all these that work. Why would you get rid of him? For a player that doesn't even want to be there, who says I'll just come for one year? I, I bring another superstar there, make the team. They they change the coaches, but I just think I, it's not like oh, it's a business and and a jury. The general manager had to make the call. I just think that look, you went even two months ago. You just told him he's your centerpiece, then you trade him. But the fact is that Leonard doesn't want to be a centerpiece. He doesn't want to be there. You have a superstar <laughs> player who averages 23, 24, 27, 23 points a game. Who's a Excellent player who you can build around and wants to be there his entire career. He's been there for nine years. Keep him and build around, and you're so close to winning. Try it with that. I just I thought it was a terrible, terrible move on Toronto's part. And I'll tell you what, San Antonio, they're getting a great player. They're getting someone who's going to give them 100% effort, who's going to play 82 games, not seven games. And I think he's going to love playing in San Antonio, and I think the San Antonio fans are going to embrace DeRozan just like the Toronto fans embraced him too. You know, you know what, Ira, you hit the nail on the head. First of all, there's not many guys guys in basketball or all of sports who are loyal and who seem to just want to be there. Before last year, Toronto was a blip on the radar in the East. What's their best finish for last year? Third. And they're, they're, you know, they're one and done. This guy, DeMar DeRozan, embraces Toronto. Their tax rate's through the roof. He doesn't care. He likes the team. He likes the ownership. He likes the general managers up until a week ago. But then they show a pattern of you know, firing the coach of the year to try to shake things up. Is Kawhi Leonard a better player than DeMar DeRozan? Yes. Is he a one-year rental that doesn't want to be there? Yes. So I, I just think these are bad decisions, Ira. Uh, what's your you know take before we uh, move on, because we've got uh, Steve Hartman joining us in just a minute. Toronto Raptors, what's their outlook in the East now? The East doesn't have Cleveland anymore. Their arch nemesis, what do you think? I, I don't think – I'm not sold on this. Whole, I, I've t- we've talked about this before. Kawhi Leonard's a great player. He's a great player in the San Antonio system. And I think I'm not saying everyone's always the best two-way player. He's all this. He's all that. I'm not sold that this is such a major improvement over DeMar DeRozan, a player who wanted to be there, who was excited about playing there. And DeRozan's like, look, I'm going to play this year, and I'm going to go to the Lakers, and if I'm hurt, I will play. If I don't feel like I'm playing, I I don't get it. I I, I think, I don't know, I think it's a terrible move. I think Toronto's going to be like what happened to Atlanta. You know, three years, four years ago, Atlanta had this great record with the best record in the East. Now they're one of the worst teams, probably the worst team in basketball. I I just don't know what (laughs) Toronto's doing. I think that was a terrible move from them, and I would have kept DeRozan. You're so close. You can, they they had a team. They they beat Boston last year. They beat Boston when Boston had uh, Kyrie, Kyrie Irving. So they, and during the regular season, they could, this team could win the East again. Maybe they're not going to beat Golden State, but eventually they're young enough that they could 
figure the parts out and maybe beat Golden State. But this is this made no sense to me. But it, I, it, the only thing I can think of, Ira, is they're trying to get out of his contract. It, the only thing I could possibly think of. He's getting paid well, but I mean, now you've got eighth men making basically what he made. So, Ira, that was the only thing maybe I was thinking that they just didn't want to pay him for three more years. But the salary cap's going to grow up. Twenty-seven million isn't that great, isn't that much for a guy who's one who's a superstar player. Um, I, getting out of the contract to sign who? Who are they going to sign? If yeah, you get point. out of the contract, it's one nobody thing. wants to play in Toronto. Who are you going to sign? Who are players are going to go there? It was hard to get. Hard to get. It's hard to get these players to come there. Paul George wouldn't even go to the Lakers. So Good you can point. people will say, "Oh, I have, it's great to have cap room," but you got to be able to sign players to that cap room. If players don't want to come there to play, they're not going to fill that cap room. Or you could just be the Knicks and just never have cap room, or anybody wanting to come there. So 754 Iron Sports 959. It's the true oldies channel on Mike Balsamo. Time to bring in Steve Hartman. He's our Cleveland super fan. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Steve, I got a question for you. So you're a huge sports fan. Obviously, Cleveland, you know, is what resonates with you. The Indians, I'm a Yankee fan, so I gotta preface it by that. You guys are good, but it seems to be that the media is painting this to be a three-horse field in the AL between, obviously, the Yankees, Boston, and Houston. You guys are almost guaranteed a spot in the playoffs, not even playing in the wild card. You think the Indians have a chance at the World Series? Absolutely. I think that this is going to be an epic AL pennant uh, it is. race. You've got four great teams, and this year we're just laying in the weeds. We'll be able to go in with some momentum, will be able to set up their starting pitching. Last year we won 22 in a row, and what good did that do us? The Yankees, you know, as a wild card, they got to have a one-game playoff to even get to play somebody seven games. So I'm really excited about where the Indians are. We've got great hitting, great starting pitching. They're shorting up the bullpen. And if Miller can come back at a fraction of what he was in 16, they could go the distance. they got the manager. They've got it all. Steve, Francona's always been a thorn in my side, so I'll give you some credit on that. This is getting deep into the Cleveland Indians uh, infrastructure, and I'll ask you this one because I don't think a lot of people would know who Francisco Mejia is or Mejia. Guy is one of the top prospects in all of baseball. You guys sent him to San Diego for Brad Hand. Brad Hand's a great reliever, shoring up your bullpen, but were you a little disappointed to see your number one overall prospect moving for kind of a rental reliever? Yeah, it takes something. you got to give something up to yeah. get something big in return. And you look at what Mike Chernoff and Chris Antonetti have been able to do in a small market with the budget that they have is just exceptional. They've been able to spot talent and emerging talent that they could control for a period of years because we can't get free agents to come here that easily like you were just talking about with Toronto Raptors and many other cities. So I think that they've done a great job of spotting people that they could get under control for a period of time, like Andrew Miller, to try to execute on their championship window. So do we love giving up you know, a top-hitting prospect like that? Not really, but he wasn't going to be a catcher in the Cleveland organization with Jan Gomes and Roberto Perez in front of him. So it was a move that had to be made, and now you've got Brad Hand, and you've got, in essence, in Simber, a young Joe Smith, that can help shore up the back end of the bullpen. And I think that Brad Hand is a big upgrade even over Brian Shaw, who did very well for us the last few years. You no, know, Hand is totally an upgrade. I'm always just skeptical. Like I said, being a Yankee fan, they're knocking on our door for, for the top prospects. And granted, yeah, if you want Manny Mikado, you're going to have to give something up. But I, I was just a little skeptical. Mejia um, is someone I've been following. But you're right, Jan Gomes, it, this guy is a prototypical catcher. No reason to you know um, give him up or hold on to something if you've got the chance to win now. And you guys do through the amazing drafting and uh, player development that Cleveland's had for a while. 758, this is Steve Hartman, our Cleveland super fan here on Ira on Sports. Uh, before we get to Ira, Steve, you got some ties to uh, West Palm Beach, don't you? I do. Yeah, I am. Uh, spent my whole winter down there. I opened up two art galleries there, and uh, you know, other than Cleveland sports and flying home for the Cleveland Indians season opener and the coldest game on record, <laughs> um, I'm really enjoying the uh, the dual lifestyle of of seasoning down in Florida. Ira, what you got for Steve? 
Steve, I, I thanks a lot for coming on. I've, I've talked to you over a number of times over the last month, and, and your passion and the fact that you've uh, gone to all the games are very much like me in terms of loving to be there in the in the moment. Uh, you told me you went to the, all seven games of the uh, of the Cubs Indians World Series. Uh, tell me about that. that. I mean, that was. I mean, every one of those games was tremendous. The the tension. What was it like to be an Indians fan to be there for seven games for those seven games? It was an incredible experience because it's a year after the Cavs won it all, and I was at Game Seven of the NBA Finals and um, in the locker room and traveled with the team to Vegas for the after party, and then to go right into the Indians. We kept our Game 7 crew, our lucky crew, together, uh, went to Chicago, and the experience in Wrigley, I mean, the fans there were unbelievable. I would say in the first game in Wrigley, there were only 100 Cleveland Indians fans. Crazy. Um, I sat next to Dee Snyder, um, the guy from Twisted (laughs) (laughs) which was an experience in of itself. But I got to tell you, to be in the first World Series game in Wrigley Field in 108 years and to have the two lovable losing franchises battling to a epic seven-game series, extra-inning, winner-take-all World Series. There's, there's just nothing like it. My ticket to the first game in Wrigley was actually more expensive than Game 7 of the NBA Finals. Wow. Iris talked about that, too. <laughs> Ira, what else you got? No, I didn't. That's the, one game, that's the one World Series. I've been to 40 World Series games, and I was looking to go to the World Series, and I could not believe the ticket. The ticket prices were Super Bowl-level pricing for tickets for those seven games. So it was because I mean, you got two fan bases that were just desperate for, to go to the sports. But, Steve, tell me, before we, let's move on to the Browns for a second, because there is, for a team that has won one game in two years, I mean, there's a lot of excitement around this team. And, I, I mean, it centers around Baker Mayfield, but I'm starting to really get the feel. I'm a Steelers fan, as I told you, but I'm starting that my friends who are Brown fans, this is, they're finally, they're, you know, cautiously, when I mean caution, caution with a capital C, but they're cautiously optimistic that this is the, that the process is finally working. And I think that's the perfect word, just like, you know, Sam Hankey building the 76ers. We've just had to go through such turmoil and so many different leadership at the top and GMs and coaches. And I think that they're finally turned the corner. I think that they've got a lot of good young talent. You know, the depth will come over time. This is a big year for Hugh Jackson because they really do have the talent. And if he doesn't turn it around this year, then it would probably would be time to move over. But I think that there's a lot of exciting talent. The thing with Josh Gordon today, a little bit of a disappointment. I know he's tough to rely on, but we hope that you know he does well. And I think that this was a preventative measure so that he can play this season. And I just you look at our linebacking crew and the great defensive line that we've built up, and a pool of good running backs and. You finally have a quality veteran quarterback and, you know, a potential franchise quarterback, you know, behind him. And things are starting to look up for the Browns. You always are a little bit weary. I've gone through this, you know, <laughs> my whole life. But we used to deal with that with the Cavs and the Indians. And I think that the Browns are finally on the right track and on the upswing. As a Steelers fan, I'm nervous. You know, people don't rec- realize that game one, Steelers are at Browns. They're like, oh, easy win. You know, everyone who goes through the schedule. But, I mean, I've seen the Steelers lose games like this. And it's the AFC North. One, if the Steelers go to Cleveland and lose that game in Cleveland, first of all, Cleveland fans are going crazy, and Steelers fans are going to, like, it'll be a disaster. Uh, Le'Veon Bell is going to sit out all of training camp. They're going to want to fire Tomlin. They're going to retire Rotzenberger. I mean, there'll be crisis in Pittsburgh. It, 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 that game could be monumental. And we are finally on the upswing at the right time. I mean, Pittsburgh has a great team, a great coach, and great talent, but quarterback is the name of the game in the league, and Roethlisberger is getting up there. And I think over the next couple of years, you will start to see a changing of the guard in the division. You know, Baltimore losing Ozzie Newsome, I think that you can't underestimate things like that. Cincinnati, I just think that they're always a train wreck as an organization. (laughs) Oh, Cleveland versus Cincinnati fuel, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. So I guess, and one last one last question, Steve. Before we go, is is um, 
I, you were telling me that you had season tickets when the, the, the Cleveland Cavaliers played at the Richfield Coliseum, which was not even in Cleveland. It's like outside of Cleveland. And uh, I, I, you might have been like one of uh, 10, 20 fans that had season tickets for that. And, uh, uh, and then you certainly transitioned. So after being the long-suffering fan you were, how was it to finally win the title? It must have been that. It just have been amazing. You, you wait your whole life. I've been at all of them. The shot, the drive, the fumble. You think you're going to the Super Bowl with 54 seconds left, and Elway takes them down the field. Yep. Jordan over Elo. And it's just, as somebody my age, you know, I was born one year after the last Cleveland championship. I literally waited my whole <laughs> life for that. And the feeling of it was unlike anything you could describe. My whole life, I always thought, if Cleveland ever won, I would either break down crying, break out laughing, or I might just drop dead on the spot. And I got to tell you, in front of one of my biggest clients and best friends, I just bawled like a baby when we won. There's nothing like it. And the five days after that were the best five days of my life. That is amazing. You know what, though, um, Steve? That's the first Craig Elo reference we've ever had on Iron Sports. So I love that <laughs> dropping because it brings me back to a simpler time. I got two questions for you before we go. 805 Iron Sports, 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Steve Hartman's with us, our Cleveland super fan. One of them is an opinion, and the other one might be a little bit. It's just something I've always wondered. Um, we'll go with the opinion first. What'd you like better, the Jake or Progressive Field? Oh, not even a question. The Jake. I, I still call it the Jake. It will always be the Jake. <laughs> they can call it whatever they want. It's Jacob's Field. You are just like uh, all of us diehards. The new stadium never quite meets up to it. This next one you're not going to like, but it's something through my life. I've seen it a thousand times. The Mayflower trucks pulling out of Cleveland. What was going through you, a diehard Cleveland Browns fan who saw them play outside of Cleveland, which nobody really has with the 12-season ticket holders that Ira talked about, when your football team packed up and moved to Baltimore, what was going through your head? It was heartbreaking. I was at the game, and I just remember people taking seats and momentum with them, the players just going up into the dog pound and the realization that we were losing the team. My cousin happened to have been the mascot of the Browns at the time and started the signature (laughs) petition campaign that literally caused headaches throughout the NFL organization. I mean, they were crashing computers. Um, It was just a terrible time to be a Clevelander, and it, it was a tremendous loss of you know pride in your city losing a sports team it's very it's really hard to really verbalize the pain that people felt because at the end of the day this is a browns town i'm a huge basketball and baseball fan but the majority of people in the city of cleveland were a rust belt city we're a comeback city we're you know a very hard-working culture hard you know great ethics and things like that and to have something taken away like that was heartbreaking it was 1996 i was 13 years old and i knew that you guys were probably the best fan base in all of sports and i remember waking up and watching Stuart scott talk about these mayflower trucks pulling in and moving this team to baltimore and for me it was a lot so I couldn't imagine what someone who's been a diehard fan of Cleveland sports and the Browns forever would, would uh, you know, make of it. So I'm so glad to get your honest opinion on this. He is Steve Hartman, our Cleveland superfan. You're an amazing guest. Spend some time in West Palm Beach as well. And you're always welcome here on Iron Sports. Thank you so much. Have a great night, guys. We really appreciate your time. Uh, Ira, what do you think here? Two great interviews tonight. Um, what are you planning this week? It's a kind of a slow time for sports. Maybe hang out with Craig Elo um, somewhere in Montauk? <laughs> well, you know, a lot of the, uh, the pro athletes, I did meet uh, Danny Green of the Spurs this week when I was in, in the Hamptons. So it, it, if you, it, it, certainly this is the time of the year where the NBA players are out and about. Uh, having a good time and, and getting ready for the NBA season. But uh, the one before we go, I just wanted to say that on about the Machado trade, uh, I, 
his handling of this trade compared to how these other athletes, I, he was interviewed at the All-Star game, he said all the right things. He was interviewed during the trade, said all the right things. Since then, he said all the right things. He, he's complimentary towards Baltimore. He's complimentary towards uh, Los Angeles. He's complimentary towards teammates, his owners. Um, when you hear about the Leonard trade and people forcing themselves out, I mean, here's this. He is this is great, great baseball player who has been on the trading block for three months on a terrible, terrible team who's having the best year of his life. Uh, I just got. I think he, I just wish him the best of luck with the Dodgers. I think he's going to be great on that team today. They announced he's going to move to the third base. He was playing shortstop. He's doing whatever it helps to help the team win. Um, I think he's a real great. I, I just Manny Machado is becoming one of my favorite base, all of my favorite uh, athletes in sports. Just how is how he's been acting, you, how he talks, and, and not afraid of answering questions. Uh, just uh, I wish him the best of luck for the Dodgers. You know, you couldn't have summed that up better. I mean, it, a lot of people don't. Re- Remember that Manny Machado's entire career has been overshadowed by Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper was the number one overall pick in the uh, 2010 draft. Manny Machado was kind of an afterthought, and he's turned out to be, if you look at it, a better player. Uh, Manny Machado's a better player across the board, plays more important positions than Bryce Harper. I'm shocked he's moving back to third base, but this may be part of the plan to join the Yankees here in a couple of weeks, and I think, Ira... I think that's where he's going with being the class act because you know that's all we'll take in the Bronx. Uh, by the way, Florida kid. Played at Brito High School uh, here in Florida. Ira, we're out of time. Great show tonight. I want to thank so much Ray Boom Boom Mancini. Also, Steve Hartman, our Cleveland super fan, for stopping by. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday nights. Ira on sports.